0: On the 40th day, would you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1? On the 40th day, what happened on the 40th day? Acts chapter 1, if you would follow along with me. We put the numbers down. If you have one of our little uh, Bibles there, you may find in front of you. It's on page 758, Acts 1. So we're looking together following what happened 40 days after Jesus was crucified, after Passover. And after, verse 3 says, And after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days. And he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom. Spoke to him about the kingdom of God. What do we mean by the kingdom? And if you are aware of that, we pray in our prayer, in our Lord's prayer, Thy kingdom come, don't we? We have that in our prayer, right? thy kingdom come. We look forward to his kingdom. But Jesus made it very clear that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How could it be that we're looking forward to the kingdom to come, and yet the kingdom of heaven is already here? At hand, Jesus even said so in Matthew ten seven, where he says, As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. It's already there. So follow that thought that wherever Jesus is proclaimed, there is the kingdom. And his advancement of his kingdom wherever it is. So this is rather interesting as he's going on and he's talking about the kingdom to his disciples and trying to aware, make them aware of what is happening. And he asked them about that. And on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. And it said, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. And he had been talking to him about this before. And in verse 5, uh, for John baptized with water, but in a few days he will be baptized with what? The Holy Spirit. He'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, next Sabbath, next week, I'm going to speak on what really happened on Pentecost. Help you're brave enough to come and hear that. It's going to be something. So, what really happened on Pentecost? But not this week, sorry. So we'll continue on with verse 6. And then they gathered around him, and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? What did the first verses just talk about? He said, I had talked to him about the kingdom, didn't he? He said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He had been trying to tell them the whole three and a half years he walked with them what the kingdom was about. And now, on the 40th day, on this last day that he is with them, he says to them, and they turn around and they say to him, is it now, Lord, that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? This was the great hope that they had. You see, they missed the kingdom theme entirely. It's easy for us to miss the kingdom theme entirely, too. Not that tough, see? You see, there's something about us like them that we like to speculate and know about the future. Whenever I hold a revelation class, I know people are going to show up because they want to know what's going to happen. Look into the future. We kind of like to know that. What's going to happen? What's the prep thing going to do? So I hang in there and I want to come. So I always do a Daniel and Revelation class at my churches because there's enough interest. Can you help us understand what's coming in the future? And so they were speculating. Is it now, Lord, that you're going to set up the kingdom of Israel? Is that going to happen? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. And now watch. He switches The subject back to, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Jesus said, you will receive power. It is interesting when he talks about you receiving power. The disciples, the followers, you're going to receive power there. Power implies something. It implies the ability to work miracles, and that was to be the chief evidence that the Christian church was beginning because they were picking up the same ministry that Jesus had, doing miracles. And we know this story because we've heard Jesus, he was there helping people who were crippled. And then right immediately following this, come up in Acts, we find that the, the whole thing about uh, Peter and John going to the gate beautiful, and Healing that man that was there at the gate in the name of Jesus. So the power given to them, the power to do something was there and sustained. Okay, back to our text. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Why did Jesus mention Jerusalem first? That's good to know. Why would he mention Jerusalem first? The reason he did that is because they had just been through all those events. They had just seen that. Israel and in Jerusalem had witnessed the thing of Christ's sacrifice. Why they had been there and they had seen his trials. They knew all about that. It was the talk of the town. Everybody knew this about that. They were still talking about how an innocent man like that could have been killed. And so they are all up in arms about it. So Jesus said, first go where the people are talking about it. They had been there, they knew about how he had been on the cross, and they were yelled at him, and how he yelled, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. They also remember that he was died on the cross, taken down. And then Jesus said, first go to Jerusalem. Go where that story took place. Go to heaven, because you'll have the greatest impact, because you have people's attention. And then he said, and then to Judea. And where did he tell him to go? To Samaria. We don't associate with Samaritans. Don't, we don't do that. Go to Samaria. Keep expanding. Until you go to the ends of the earth. Even Naples Pier. And after he said this. He was taken up before their very eyes. And a cloud hid him from their sight. A cloud hid him. So um, when I took my youngest son to go to camp, he was going to go to junior camp and he was going to spend a week at camp. And so we packed up his stuff, and this was his first time out by himself, and he had his suitcase all there and his sleeping bag and his pillow, and we took him to camp, and oh, he was so excited to go, and we took him there, and eventually mom and dad have to go home and leave poor little Greg there at camp. Oh, he was excited, he was excited, to because at the end of that camp, We were planning to have his baptism. So it was going to be an exciting camp for him. So we showed, we said goodbye. And as we left, you see, it was as if a cloud hid him from our sight. Because we drove away. In the same way, Jesus ascended into heaven. Our leaving camp was a way of Greg experiencing life on his own without mom and dad around. As Jesus was hid from them as he ascended, he left the apostles to be able to do something more than what they had been doing. So at the end of camp, we went back there, and the beauty of it, this is for all these mothers... At the beauty of it, Greg was able to open his suitcase and show us he hadn't worn any of those clothes that we had packed. He stayed in the same clothes the entire week. (laughs) Look at the laundry he saved his mother. Glad we had a baptism. We told him, hey, you can wear something else today. I think, oh, I don't, I don't need to. Look, you look like you've been rolling in the mud. Probably had. So did Jesus really leave? Well, of course he did. He ascended. But did he leave us? Because in actual fact, Jesus taught us that he was going to dwell within us through his spirit. You see? Jesus said, I promise, I'm going to be with you always to the very end of the age. So in a really real sense, a transition happened on the 40th day uh, where Jesus left physically. He ascended it down so something else more powerful, more effective for every one of us would reach into all of us. And while they were looking intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. And it said, men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing looking into the sky? What would you be doing? I would be looking, wouldn't you? Of course you'd be looking. Every one of us would be looking up. Ah, Yes. Wondering if they're going to part. We're going to see something more. Would there be something happening there? Is he being transformed to some other place? What is taking They've never seen a man spread his arms out like that and rise up from the ground like that. They've never seen that type of thing. And so they're standing with their mouths open and all of a sudden these two men show up in white and they are saying, why are you standing there looking up into heaven? Well, of course they are. And then they go on and say, this same Jesus... Who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. How did he go into heaven? He was hid from them by a cloud. And throughout scripture, we find the appearance of Christ associated with a cloud, going up into a cloud, coming in a cloud. Dearly beloved, that's what we are looking forward the day when Jesus will come and will descend. And then the disciples, they uh, returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city that far away. And they went back, and this time, they did what Jesus said, and they waited in Jerusalem. We believe in the upper room, which was John Mark's parents' home. We believe that. Understand that. So they obeyed. Remember the last time Jesus told them to stay there? They went out fishing. Remember that story? They went out fishing. He had to go get them back from their nets to get back on the job again. In actual fact, Jesus called his disciples more than once. He kept, they kept wanting to go back to their old habits, And Jesus had to go back and re-recruit them again and have them come back. All right, so keep that thought, and let's go to 2 Timothy. Now Paul, Paul writing to Timothy, shares us something very interesting and fascinating as we look at Timothy. Paul is writing this letter, this letter of encouragement to young Timothy who is a pastor, as it were, is an apostle, follower of Christ. He's a missionary in sense, and he's writing to them, and he shares this with them, and he says in verse 6, for this reason, I remind you to fan the flame of the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on the hands, because they set him aside, but to remind you to fan the flame of the gift of God. The gift of God is what? The gift is the Holy Spirit, is it not? So he's telling, fan the flame, fan the flame of this gift that God has given to you. Verse 7, for the spirit of God gave us, does not, excuse me, the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us what? Power, love, and self-discipline. That's what happens when the Spirit comes. So do not be ashamed for the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God. He has saved up and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of his own purposes and grace. This grace, he said, was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning Of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, excuse me, who um, had destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Please understand that the name here, Savior and Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus is not. It means the anointed one. It's not a name like my name is Bill Bossert. It's not like the last name is Jesus and the first name is Christ. There's meaning things out of him. The word Christ also is used in the Hebrew as Messiah, the same idea, the anointed one. So here's the Savior who has come, is appearing as a Savior. He's destroyed death because he's come from the grave and shouting immortality and light come through the gospel. And this gospel... I was appointed to Harold as an apostle and a teacher. This, he says, is why I am. This is why I suffer as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard that I have entrusted to him until that day. I know in whom I have believed. I know in whom I have believed. What does that mean? Why would Paul cherish the gift of the Holy Spirit given to him, said, "Fan the flame of the Holy Spirit? Because Paul saying, "I know, I know." What does it mean to have "I know in whom I believe?" To know and to have understanding of it is more than just blind faith, I would suggest to you. I would suggest that what is happening with him is he had such convincing evidence of Christ and who Christ is that putting his trust in Christ was an absolute fact and known. And it was no wavering in his mind and in his thinking. I know in whom I have believed. I know the factual part of that. And I know that my trust and faith in him is based on the solidity of God himself. And therefore, in trusting him, I know in whom I believe that you can take it to the bank. That's why we're going to fan the flame. Because we know the assurance of what has taken place. We know. And if you remember the story of Paul and sharing when he met him on Damascus Road... He considers that his calling as an apostle. He was on his way to slay Christians. And he gets stopped on the Damascus Road. And the bright light comes around. And he looks up into heaven. And he sees Christ sitting on the throne. He knew who Jesus was. He could see him. He had seen him before. And he asked, why are you going out to persecute me? Jesus said. And Paul's life was completely changed. Because he had had that encounter with the living God. There was no wavering in his belief. He knew. Therefore, it comes to us. Do I know in whom I have believed? Do I know? There's a wonderful story in Mark chapter 9. And in Mark chapter 9, there's a story of a father who's caring a great deal for his child, his son. But the son has a serious problem bible it talks about being devil possessed we're wondering if he might have had epilepsy if that might have been the problem that he was having because the son would get in convulsions and he would be uncontrolled and sometimes he'd fall into the water sometimes he'd fall into the fire he was having a terrible problem can you imagine as a parent having that in your family and having that at no no warning whatsoever you have this happening and taking place and the father is desperate and so he goes and finds Jesus and he comes and he finds Jesus and he tells him this story in verse 22 it is often as thrown him into the fire and the water to kill him but if you can do anything take pity on us and help us Would you notice that if you can do anything he is at the edge of there's nothing more that can be done. Nobody's been able to help him. And Jesus responds and says to him, if you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for one who believes. I was at Boston Temple, pastoring and being the associate pastor for university students and We needed some things done to that church. It was falling apart. It was 104 years old, church. Church was full of students, poor people, and it needed a lot of renovation. It's kind of interesting when you're a pastor there and you're among the rich. You know what I mean? You can kind of state where everybody else is. So um, we knew some things that he had done. One of them was the windows in that church. I think I've shared with you. And the windows in that church were terrible shape. We had no money. Each window to restore it would cost ten thousand dollars. There were eight of them. I asked the pastor, "Well, what are we going to do? Those windows are going to fall out soon. Wind blow, and they're going to be all on the floor, broken pieces. What are we going to do?" said we're going to pray we're going to have faith he believed said the Lord this is God's house he'll take care of it well it wasn't too much longer than another few weeks in walked the uh, restoration society in Boston and they came in and said hey we see your windows are pretty bad yeah they are would you mind if we restored them really no charge to you so one by one, they took those huge windows out of that church and went and restored them. No cost to us. Later, they came back and did the doors. So they thought our doors. we had beautiful, old, old doors, but it's wonder anybody couldn't walk in any time, just shake them and you'd have all the door apart. How are we going to do that? Because the Lord will take care of it for those who believe, for those who believe, I believe that the Lord. Will help us build the building next door. I believe. So here's this father. He's brought his child. Child is throwing himself all over, convulsing, has foam in the mouth, has terrible things happening going on. Father's at the, it's wits end. Of what to do? He desperately comes to Jesus. Please, is there anything you do? And Jesus said, "If you can." <laughs> if you can. Jesus says. Everything is possible. And the father responds immediately. And he said. The father said. I do believe. I do believe. But help overcome my unbelief. You see. And the Lord healed him. The Lord healed him. I do believe. But help my, overcome my unbelief. The father recognized his hesitancy to be able to trust Jesus. That story is in the scriptures, not only to show who Jesus is, but to help us in our growth of faith. I believe. I believe that this church at this time is poised in a perfect place to minister to our community and to draw folks to Christ. This is our opportunity. It is now at our door. I don't know what it was like before. I don't know what happened in the past. But at this time, we are there. And if you look You can see already it's happening. We shall see great things happening here. If we like that father, say, I believe. Lord, help my unbelief. Dear Lord, I thank you for this story and your ascension. Forty days... 40 days afterwards we see the resurre- uh, the ascension of you into heaven and then next week the pouring out of your spirit and what that will mean. You've positioned us in a place right here on Davis Boulevard and in this community for those around us. We surrender our church to you. We ask that you use us be able to reach those that are in terrible need around us some are in need financially some are in need because of the troubles in their lives others are in need because they don't know you and they're wandering they don't know what they don't know what it means to have you as their savior and friend so we have before us a huge projects to do not only in building but in relationship building And also in ministering to those around us. And I thank you for placing those gifts right here in this church family to do exactly that. To your name and to your glory. Amen.